All right, well, of all the church denominations that have formed since the Reformation, I think it's safe to say the Presbyterian denomination has suffered the most schism. In America, the first Presbytery formed in 1706 in Philadelphia. But pretty soon thereafter, it just started splintering and dividing. In 1740, during the First Great Awakening, a split formed, some favoring the revival, some opposing. The church split again in 1810 when a group of Kentucky ministers withdrew from the Presbyterian church, objecting to the requirement that ministers had to be formally trained. Together, they formed the independent Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Later in the 1830s, in response to the Second Great Awakening, this Presbyterian church split yet again into a new school and an old school, arguing over the Westminster standards. In 1847, the Free Presbyterian Church formed, composed of staunch abolitionists who sternly opposed allowing any slaveholders into church membership. This was in contrast to the United Synod of the South, which formed in 1858 and later became a part of the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America in 1861. Little splits and schisms and divisions continued throughout the 1800s into the 1900s in the Presbyterian Church. In 1936, the mainline denomination, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church of USA, is growing more liberal and accepting modernism. So J. Gresham Macon and others at Princeton Theological Seminary broke off and formed the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Just a few years after that, though, some people from within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church left that and formed the Bible Presbyterian Church, advocating total abstinence from alcohol. Then in 1956, the Bible Presbyterian Church itself split into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It continued. The PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, split from the PCUSA in 1973 to protest the acceptance of women pastors and homosexuality. And even as late as 2012, the ECO formed, which is a covenant order of evangelical Presbyterians protesting the ordination of gay clergy in the PCUSA. And this is just a sampling of the splintering and the division within the overall Presbyterian denomination. There's many more. It's hard to keep track. And I'm sure you can guess what the effect is of all this splintering within the Christian church. It is the slowing down, even if you could say the halt in some circles, of the progress of the gospel. And granted, sometimes division is necessary when others deny the gospel, deny the Lord. But when the church divides over less noble reasons, those in the world are repelled by such hypocrisy. The church's witness is weakened, the light is dimmed. Now we know that there's no stopping God's gospel in his plan, but he wants the church to participate in that plan by being a light to the dark world around them. But when the church is known by infighting and disunity, that, that light gets snuffed. In most ropes today, they're made of nylon, and they're incredibly strong, able to hold hundreds of pounds. If you look closely, though, nylon rope is formed by weaving together five or more smaller nylon strands. And each of those themselves are formed by weaving together many more composite strands of nylon. And if you were to fully unravel a nylon, nylon rope, you'd find that a single little hair strand could barely hold any weight. It's only when they're all woven together as one that they, they find their immense strength. And that's pretty much how God designed his church. 
It's a body of believers who scattered are, are quite weak, but when united together as one are unbelievably strong. Jesus himself taught that there would be a direct correlation between the brightness of the church's witness and, and the oneness of the church. But when we separate and divide, the light of the truth appears small. It's such an unnatural thing for so many different people, different ethnicities and backgrounds to come together in one body that when it happens, though, many in the world take notice and even are drawn to Christ. Now, that being said, some in the world are never drawn to Christ. They they hate him. They deny God. They'd love to see nothing more than the church break apart and be done away with. But here, too, the church's unity is essential. External forces are constantly at work trying to pull the church apart, like fraying an island rope, hoping it will break. But for this reason, all the more so the church needs to hold together in light of all of this opposition. Unfortunately, though, all too often churches unravel from the inside out. Forces of disunity are at work within, too. Like termites eating through wood, often all that's left is a shell of a structure and, and like a, a house eaten by termites, it's very easy to, to push that over. This was the danger confronting the Philippian church. Threats to unity from without, threats to unity from within, as we continue to learn about that this morning. You can open your Bibles now to Philippians 2. The Philippian believers, they'd been partners with Paul in the work of the gospel from the beginning, and he rejoices in this, but... Their efforts in the progress of the gospel, they were at risk of slowing down, even halting. And why is that? Because of disunity. There was internal friction in the church. And like all friction, it was slowing them down. Some cracks were starting to show in the church's foundation. And it was at risk of splitting apart. The specific cause, we only know so much, but from chapter 4, we, we learn that there is a, a serious division between two prominent women in the church, and most likely everyone else was taking sides around them. We don't know the exact nature of the conflict, but we do know it's, it wasn't theological. It was personal. Sometimes the church must separate from those who deny the Lord, deny the gospel, deny the truth. In such cases, although it's always sad, division is necessary. The purity of the church must be upheld. But that's not what was going on in Philippi. Rather, like so many churches today, it was really just personal preference, personal issues, selfish interests that were taking place and driving them apart. And those certainly do not merit division. But when selfishness plus pride prevail, division, disunity is, is often the result. So as we started to learn last week, as Paul turns his attention to addressing the Philippians, the first issue he brings up is their unity. Starting in Philippians 1.27, just look back real quick there. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The Philippian church was starting to feel the heat of persecution. But that's not something the Lord wants us to face alone. So the church needed to double its efforts to stand together in, in light of this external threat to their unity. 
And so in verses 28 through 30 of chapter 1, Paul addresses this external threat to their oneness. But there was also an internal threat to their unity. And as we said, this is what Paul sets his sights on now in chapter 2. There he gives some concise yet powerful teaching on the oneness of the church. And I actually think this may be the most potent passage in all of scripture on the unity of the church here in Philippians 2. It can be said that from the soil of pride sprouts only division, but from the soil of humility will come the fruit of unity. And Paul's intention here in chapter 2 is to sow or implant humility in the hearts of the Philippians that it might bear the fruit of unity, which is so important as we've learned. And so accordingly, we found that Paul develops three vital aspects of unity in chapter 2, 1 through 4. You have number one, the prerequisites of unity. Number two, the picture of unity. And number three, the pursuit of unity. And last week, we actually covered that the first two of those We found four prerequisites of unity. He's like the four legs of a table on which the unity of the church stands. And they're found in verse 1. So just to refresh our memory, you can look at verse 1 again. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... You can stop there for now. In reality, we learn these four requisites or prerequisites. They've already been met. This is what the church's unity is based on, but we learn these have already been given to us, accomplished in Christ, in our salvation. When you came to Christ, you already received the consolation of God's love, the encouragement of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, the affection and compassion from the Lord. And so we found there's no excuse God has already established the church's oneness. He's already supernaturally laid that foundation for us to actually live as one. We have this unity of the Spirit already. We've already been richly supplied. So the prerequisites, they're there by way of reminder. We need to remember what our unity is based on. That's verse 1. But then he moves into the picture of unity in verse 2. That being said, this is what our unity should look like. Verse 2, he says, after this, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Overall, the emphasis in this picture is having the same mindset. The church must be united around a servant's mindset which we learned from the Lord himself. Picture then is of all believers coming together driven by the same purpose, not their own will, but God's will, not their own interests, but God's interests, the interests of others. And that's the goal of our unity. And the result of that single-mindedness where we're all driven to the glory of God, to the praise of his name, the spread of the gospel, that one purpose the result would be a powerful unity in the church. The world would take notice. It's, it's the chosen vehicle, one of the chosen vehicles God has used, chosen to use, to deliver the power of his gospel. 
That's our mission. That's our command. God supplies all the supernatural power we need for the work. And in light of that, though, we're not to be passive. We were not just to sit around and wait for unity to happen. God has given it to us. He's founded it, but he also instructs us to pursue this picture of unity with all of our effort. I think, as we read last week in Ephesians 4, it really puts it best. In Christ, God has already called us together as one. He's made us one by the fellowship of the Spirit. We all have the Spirit and been baptized by the Spirit into one body, the the universal church. But now we're, we're called to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We don't provide it. The Lord provides it. But he does call us to preserve it and to pursue it. And this is what Paul focuses on in verses 3 and 4, which is our text for this morning. And here we find the third vital aspect of our unity, the pursuit of unity. And although brief, we find some of those practical and powerful and useful instructions on how to engage in this pursuit of the unity which we already have in, in the Spirit. So our goal today is to continue in this passage and practically learn all about how we now, being already equipped by the Spirit, are to actively pursue the unity that the Lord wants in his church. And so we find, technically, this is number three in our outline, which we started last week. Number three is the pursuit of unity. The prerequisites, the picture, now thirdly, the pursuit of unity. And let's, let's read about this in verses three and four. Of Philippians 2. He says next, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As we narrow in on these two verses this morning, Just to give you a little outline within an outline, we find even further three basic practices of unity that you need to pursue. And this is the pursuit. And within, there are three basic practices of unity that you need to pursue. And it's certainly worth our time to explore these. So let's do that. The first is to deny self. The first basic practice, deny self. Look again at verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness is always at the root of division. Just think of any conflict you've had in the church, in your family, in your marriage. And if you can be brutally honest with yourself, where did that conflict come from? Well, chances are selfish interests. Likely on both sides, we are all selfish creatures. We have wants and desires, and when your wants and desires run up against someone else's wants and desires and no one is willing to budge, well, you you get conflict. And often the result of that conflict is division. Now sometimes, like we've said, this conflict and division are unavoidable. Like when others deny Christ, deny the gospel, we have no choice but to divide There can be no compromise with the truth of the gospel. 
But again, that's not really what we're talking about here in Philippians. That's not what Paul was getting at here in Philippians. He knows clearly the, the importance of the truth. This is, these are personal matters. What was dividing the Philippians was not doctrine. It was personal, selfish interests. Therefore, as you can imagine, the solution over such division is going to involve denying such selfish interests or denying self. That shouldn't surprise you. Denying self, it's one of the main aspects of our discipleship, following Christ. There is no following Christ without denying yourself. Your sinful, fallen flesh doesn't want to follow Jesus, doesn't want to live for Jesus or serve his will. It wants to live for and serve itself. We all have that still within us, the flesh. But this is why Jesus laid down the requirement to follow him First, you have to deny yourself, that part of yourself. The same goes for living in union with others who are following Christ, continually denying self. So here in verse 3, Paul starts by describing our pursuit of unity negatively, meaning here's what you must avoid. If this is something to pursue, these are two attitudes that you have to do away with. You have to crucify the flesh with its desires. And these are two desires of the, of the flesh that need to be the first to go. Of course, we must do this every day, but here's what to put off. He says first in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition. There's a really interesting etymology or background behind this word. The word for selfishness, selfishness is uh, erethia. is originally used to refer to day laborers. In the ancient world, you had a, a bunch of workers, not enough jobs, and so there would often be competition for one of the few jobs. If you wanted to get your daily wage, if you wanted to eat for that day, you, you needed to get that job. Well, you needed to be selfish. You've got to look out for number one. There's a scene in the book Grapes of Wrath that depicts hundreds of men during the Great Depression, and they're all vying and competing for like two jobs picking crops in a field just so they can get enough money to buy enough food for that day. A pretty brutal reality. But just think about it. If there are just two jobs and there's a hundred people and you need that job just to eat, well, you're either going to have to be lucky or cutthroat selfish. You're going to have to do whatever it takes to make sure you get that job. And see, this word came to be used to refer to those people, those who are willing to be cutthroat, selfish, to do whatever it takes to get their interests met, their needs met. This is the desire to get ahead, even at the expense of others. Now, we can't fault people too much who are starving to death, but this word came to describe people who are they are always selfish. They only care about themselves in all ways, these are people who want to get ahead no matter the cost, even if it means stepping on the necks of others. And people like this, of course, still exist today in all walks of life. And you see, when people act with such selfish interest, self-ambition, without regard for others, what's going to come of that? Conflict, rivalry, strife, division. It's inevitable. And the first casualty in a group filled with such people 
is unity. It's not going to happen. There's no way. Imagine those hundred workers. They're not united. Sadly, this attitude, rather, it's not limited to the secular world. Selfishness and selfish ambition like this are found in the church. Because, again, the church is still filled with, with sinners, people who still possess their sinful flesh, although redeemed in Christ. But if you don't deny self, all the same, conflict will result. In fact, you can have Christians who are doing good things, good works, but from selfish motives, and it it spoils the work, and it still ends up dividing. This happened to Paul. If you remember, back in chapter 1, how did other Christians respond to Paul's Roman imprisonment? Paul's in Rome when he writes this. He's in prison. The other Christians there, they have different responses. What are they? Well, look back at chapter 1, verse 14. He says, Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So that, that's good news. Most of the other Christians have been encouraged and emboldened by Paul's imprisonment. They know he's preaching the gospel. He's faithful. Suffering will come. And, and they're fired up to preach more themselves. But not everyone. There was a, a small group of people that they used Paul's imprisonment as an occasion to further their own selfish interests. And he speaks to them in verse 15. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. See that word selfish ambition, verse 17? Same word here in verse 3 of chapter 2. They were preaching Christ. They were sharing the true gospel. We said you that. They, they had an orthodox message. But they had impure motives, he calls it. They were trying to serve self. They wanted a share of Paul's prestige and power. They wanted his notoriety, the name recognition. They wanted in on this game, so to speak. It just goes to show you, though, you can, you can do good things, but from selfish motives and still spoil the work. And the point Paul is making is that unity, it is impossible if Christians are just out for themselves. If you come to church and you're just looking out for yourself, for whatever reason, in whatever way you're only concerned about your interests, your desires, that church, that local church will never know unity. These are the attitudes that kill unity. Selfishness and rivalry are guaranteed to destroy unity. And God will never bless Christians who are consumed with their will. We are to be about God's will, which includes serving others. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. just opens the door to all sorts of other evils as well. So you see the first negative attitude you have to avoid, you have to crucify in your pursuit of unity with Christ church. The first is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. The second, he says in verse 3, is empty conceit. 
empty conceit. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. The word literally means vain glory. You could call it cheap pride. If you kind of forget what the word conceit means, just think of the word conceited, referring to people who think way too highly of themselves, much more than they should think. It's a person who has an excessively high opinion of self. Again, it's all about the self, love of self. This person believes they are better than others. Their interests are more important than others. Of course, for most people, such conceit is grossly misplaced. The president, he gets to feel like he's the most powerful person in the world because he is. You, not so much. It doesn't stop people from acting like they're the most important person in the world, but it doesn't go that way. Hence, this is an empty conceit. This is vain glory, empty pride. These people are like balloons. The bigger they get on the outside, the greater their emptiness is on the inside. What's very dangerous, though, is that our culture today is trained to promote this. This is a good thing. This is what it's all about, the vainglory. And this attitude, it seeps into the church and poisons the well. It sets people against one another, like you come for your own glory, your own pride. That's not what the church is to be about. As the saying goes, though, such pride goes before the fall. And Paul's point is that such conceit, such an inflated view of oneself, it will diminish and destroy the church's unity. It's not that such prideful people can't have unity. It's that the only unity they can ever have centers around themselves. It's like they're the sun. You can be a planet. You can be a moon. You can be an asteroid. But you can't be another star. There's only room for one star in their solar system. And so you, you either revolve around them or or find another place, go out. Such self-importance, though, as you can imagine it, is the death knell to meaningful unity in the church. So both of these heart attitudes must be avoided and, and killed at all costs. None of your actions must stem from these. And notice that key word in verse 3. He says, do nothing. You see it? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. There's no exceptions. Not even good deeds should be done from a place of, of selfish ambition, trying to get ahead or conceit, trying to make a name for yourself. They can't even be included. It's like baking a cake with rotten eggs. It spoils the whole thing. And such selfishness, it has a way of souring even the good things done by Christians, and it, it will not unite. So first, just be aware of these and constantly check your own motives. Why do you do the things you do at church and at home? Are you secretly trying to serve yourself, trying to make a name for yourself, trying to get noticed, want some recognition, something that, that pleases you? You have an agenda and you're trying to push it. If these are part of your motives for, for anything, especially in the body of Christ, well, you'll, you'll know why you're not united. Set these apart. Set them aside. Put them away. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This brings us to the second practice of biblical unity. First, deny self. Second, humble self. Humble self. Continuing in verse 3, 
He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is obviously a corollary to denying self. It takes great humility to do this, to deny self, to realize that the universe does not revolve around you, to discover you may not be the most important person in the room. As you can probably guess, though, in the ancient world, such humility was not a virtue, was a vice. This humility was despised in the Greek and Roman world. It was seen as a sign of weakness, and instead, blatant, overt pride was glorified and a sign of strength. And sadly, I think times have returned. You know, whatever you think of our president, whether you love him or hate him, at the very least, I think everyone can agree he's never been confused with being humble. It's just not in the cards. Instead, like Nebuchadnezzar, he's known for taking pride in his pride. And humility, that, that's for the weak and for the poor who have nothing to boast about. That, that's just a product of our own culture. Everybody is like that these days, it seems. And to the contrary, though, no one really has anything to boast about. That's because no one has anything that they didn't receive simply by the, the, the mercy, the grace, the kindness of God. Your own life is, is by God's grace. The fact that you're still alive, your breath is borrowed from God's mercy towards you. Your wealth, your intelligence, you, you have nothing that you did not receive, says Paul. And so all such pride, all such boasting in self, for the Christian especially, it's ruled out. What can we, how can we boast except in, in our God? Romans 12.3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Reminds me of a story. A minister had preached a sermon on pride, and a woman came up to him after, very distraught, very concerned. She said she had a great sin to confess. And so he talked to her after. He said, well, what, what's going on? What's this sin? And she said, it's a sin of pride. I have to confess, you know, last week I sat in front of my mirror one day for a whole hour staring at myself admiring my own beauty. And the minister replied, oh, I see. That was not the sin of pride. That was the sin of imagination. (laughs) Be careful. You might find out the hard way that all pride and all boasting are misplaced. God himself, he's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. There's two types of people in the world, the humble and the humbled. And eventually you'll be one or the other. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. It's only when you have this attitude, you put away selfishness, you foster humility, only then can you do what Paul says next in verse 3. He says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. The issue here, it's not worth. He's not establishing a pecking order where you are literally worth less than other people. That's not what he's talking about. It's not about who's superior. It's really about caring for others as if they were better. He clarifies what he means in verse 4. We'll see that in a second. It's not a new sentence. It just continues on. But it's all about putting the needs of others ahead of your own. It's about giving preference to 
others. Like Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And you're called to apply this to everyone, not just the intelligent, the successful, the righteous, but the meek, the poor, the sinner. In a way, it's easy to treat the billionaire or the celebrity as if they're more important because they have, they have clout. But what about the janitor or the stay-at-home mom or the elderly couple or the disabled person? And just imagine a church or a nation or a marriage or a friendship a relationship where both parties genuinely treated one another as if the other was more important, which just means that they, they regarded the interests of the other as more important than their own. Imagine a relationship without selfishness. And if that happened, can you honestly think, how would they ever have conflict? Where would it come from? The only conflict I can imagine is, is both parties competing to serve one another more. It's like going out to dinner with a friend and and the bill comes and you're both fighting over who gets to pay the bill. That's not much of a real conflict. And if that's all the conflict we have, I think we'll be just fine. But you get the point. And you can see how this practice of treating others as more important than yourself is central to unity, especially within the church. Because it's all about selfishness versus selflessness. And if we as the church started doing this, seeking to serve the interests of others. How could a greater unity not result? And remember, in God's plan, it's supposed to be a powerful unity. It is a powerful unity. This is, this is what it takes. It's not easy, though. And no one said it was. Fostering such humility is very difficult because our sinful flesh constantly cries out wanting to be served. For this reason, though, Look to Christ. We have to remember Christ. You you can't do this in the power of your flesh, only by God's grace through the Spirit. Looking to Christ, can we humble ourselves? In fact, why do you think Paul says next what he says? Or why do you think he says next uh, what he he delivers? Look at verse 5. Right afterward, continuing on the same thought, he says, have this attitude in yourselves. Which attitude? That, that of humility, of looking out for the interests of others ahead of your own. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came first. He humbled himself first. He served us first. Because he knew otherwise we'd have no hope. We would forever be divided and in conflict and lost. But he leads us in a better way. Dying on the cross to pay for our sin. Remember, it is our sin that divides us. And in removing our sin and giving us his righteousness, he enables us to be reconciled both to God and then to one another through the spirit that applies this work. And now in union to Christ through the Holy Spirit, we have the supernatural basis of our unity. We learn that. It's still hard, though, to then in the practice of it, deny self and humble self, but look to Christ, who was gentle and humble of heart first 
Remember how he humbled himself first. He served you first. And you just just follow his lead. And also look to yourself. If you have trouble humbling yourself, it means you don't really see your own sinfulness before God as you should. You still think you're somehow better than others. Now maybe you are holier than others or more intelligent or stronger. But it didn't come by your own effort and goodness. Again, all such, all such boasting is vain because apart from God's grace, you have nothing. You are nothing. God has shut up all in condemnation under sin. Sin is a great equalizer. We're all only equally deserving of condemnation and nothing else. You may be richer or smarter or holier than others, but whatever the case, it only comes by the grace of God. And let this realization humble you. At the, at the very least, you cannot look down on others. You have to see others instead through the lens of grace. I'm only here by the grace of God. They're there by the grace of God or maybe the lack thereof. Either way, you see them as someone not to, to boast over, to, to serve you, but as someone you can serve and help come to Christ as well. And this really brings us to the final practice, basic practice of unity. We're covering here this third point, the practice of unity. And within three ways to do that, deny self, humble self, and lastly, number three, serve others. Serve others. Found in verse four. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, it's only after you deny yourself and humble yourself that you can truly serve others from the right heart. This is the Lord, this is the practice that the Lord Himself modeled for us, and this is what achieves lasting unity, serving others. This verse expresses that servant's mindset that we kind of peeked into last week. The essential picture of the church's unity is this one mindedness where we're all of the, of the same purpose. We're driven. Not for our glory, but but God's glory. Not to magnify our name, but God's name. And we get there by serving one another. We have to share this mindset of Christ, this attitude, which is a servant's heart, a servant's mindset, a servant's attitude. We believe with Christ, right, that it is better to serve, not to be served. Remember when the disciples were with the Lord and they were arguing among themselves which one of them was greatest? And what was taking place? Selfish ambition, vainglory, empty conceit, pride, leading to conflict. They started fighting. They were dividing. Remember what Christ said to them. In rebuke, he said, Matthew 20, 26 through 28, It is not to be this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great... Among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Realize Jesus came to serve us, and that is now our focus. He gives that to us as our mission as disciples. And as we pursue it, so we experience this powerful, transforming unity. Paul expresses it this way. He says, 
looking out for the interests of others. That's what we are to do, looking out for the interests of others. The word he uses for look is a word from which we derive the word scope. It means to set your eye on something, to be focused on something. The Lord wants us to follow him with a laser-like focus in serving others, looking to others. Your mindset, your approach to church should not be to be served, but to serve. I want you to ask yourself, does that describe you? Do you have a servant's mindset, a servant's heart, or a selfish heart, especially in regards to the local church? Just a simple test. This morning, before church, you're getting ready, even as you walk through the doors. What was running through your mind? What what concerned you? Were you concerned with self-focused thoughts? Were you worried about your hair, your makeup, your clothes, your appearance? Were you thinking more about what you wanted to do after church? Maybe you know your plans for the afternoon, what you want to get accomplished today, your day off. Or were you thinking about others? Were you praying for the service, praying for others? Did you think, who, who can I see today and encourage? Who can I make sure I talk to today and just see how they're doing, just catch up with them? I tell you what, if you ever feel disconnected from the body of Christ, why don't you try putting into practice this servant mindset? And you'll, you'll just watch how God will start knitting you together, building relationships, and you will experience the, the love, the joy, the peace that is promised in the oneness of the church. And the world will take notice. Those who walk through our doors, hey, by God's grace, you already all very loving and unified bunch, I think, but nonetheless, all the more so as, as others walk in, they will see, wow, these people really love the Lord. And I can tell because they love one another and they serve one another. And so back to verse 4, Paul says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We all have personal interests and wants and desires, but not necessarily evil or wrong, but the point he's making is we already look out for ourselves enough. Just, just spread it around. It's like the command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You already love yourself just fine. Just plenty. Just now focus on giving that same love to others. You already look out for your own interests enough. Look out for the interests of others in the same way. In fact, at times, even consider their interests more important than your own. Prioritize their interests over your own. I mean, of all people, Christ himself, he was entirely entitled to be served by his divine nature, even his human birthright. He should have come and all humanity should have served him. And they will. But he came first to serve us. Jesus came to do the will of his father, to please his father. What pleased the father? For him to come Humble himself, deny himself, lay down himself for us, to serve us. And it's still the same thing. It still pleases the Father now for us to lay down our lives and serve others. Romans 15.1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. I just want to 
throw in here, since it's so relevant, that all of this teaching on unity through humility, you know, it all perfectly applies to marriage and the family. It's worth pointing out. If you and your spouse or your family would just, I don't know, memorize this passage and commit to putting it into practice, you'd probably see a lot more peace in your home. Speaking of marriage, God designed marriage to be a relationship of unity, right? A one flesh union, two people, two very different people come together as one. That's hard. That's not supposed to work in the world. How can it work? The only way is the same way where both people humble themselves, deny themselves, serve one another, put the interests of God ahead of their own. Husbands, doesn't God call you to lay down your life for your wife anyway? And that includes dying to selfish interests where you serve her and her needs. You seek to live with her in an understanding manner. And wives, you're called to already follow your husband's lead, and that requires a certain humility. Do so joyfully. Only when both parties really root out selfishness in their lives and really strive to meet the needs of the other, almost like as a competition, well, that's when you'll see these conflicts start, start to vanish because it all roots back to selfishness. You may even discover the secret hiding places of selfishness in your heart as you just pursue unity in the family. Now, as an example, maybe... One day after work, you're really tired, you come home, you're exhausted. The last thing you want to do is you know, put the kids to bed. You just don't have energy for the bedtime routine. And so you kind of have a little scheme. You, you see the dishes, they're still dirty. There's only like five, though. So you say to your spouse, hey, you know, this night, how about I serve you? I'll do the dishes. You just put the kids to bed. Sounds very noble, very sacrificial of you, very righteous. But in your heart, you're really still just serving yourself. You really have selfish motives and selfish interests in mind. And the kicker is if your spouse doesn't buy your little plan, then there's conflict. You, she might say back to you, well, I, okay, but I really need your help putting the kids to bed tonight, so please help me. Your flesh then is prone to fight back. You, know, you don't seem to understand. I worked hard all day. I'm entitled to this. This is what pleases me. These are my interests. Conflict will result. Selfish ambition, vainglory, pride. When you have two people who live like this in such pride and neither are willing to humble themselves and back down, then you really get into trouble. That's when World War III comes. But this is your answer. If in humility you can accept it and pursue it, deny self, humble other, or humble self, and serve others. This is God's plan for unity in the church even in the, ha- in the family, in the home. Hopefully you can see what God's plan is all about, what God is trying to do through the unity of his people. Let me tell you a story. A long time ago, a group of men came together. In fact, you could say like the whole earth just all came together for one mission. They were like one, one body, one entity. And as they gathered together, they reflected on their greatness and they decided to build a city and a tower, the top of which would reach heaven itself. This way, they would make an everlasting name for themselves. And as they worked together, they were united in their purpose. And they were very close. They were on their way to achieving their goal. But then God came down and he visited these men at the place called Babel. 
And God said, Behold, they are one people, and they have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. God himself observed that when mankind was united, nothing was impossible for them. Now, of course, this is the story of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. What was, the, what was their problem? The problem is that they were united not for good, but for evil. They were united not to make God's name great, but their own name great. And so God judged them by what? Scattering them. He diminished man's unity. He also confused their languages, that they could not ever be one, because in their fallen state, their unity is only to evil, not to good. A principle, though, can be found in the Babel account, namely that when mankind is united, they can do great things. When they are divided, they can do nothing. Ever since that day, mankind has been divided, mostly along ethnic lines. If you look different, if you speak different, if you're from somewhere different, we have reason to divide. But here, I hope you see what God is doing with his church. In the church, God is very much reversing the scattering of humanity that took place at Babel. He is gathering together the redeemed from all the nations, all of them, into one body, the church. And keep in mind, when when the church formed, Acts 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, it's no wonder they all spoke in tongues. God was reversing that scattering. They all could finally understand one another again. That was a preview of the kingdom. The difference, though, is that now the church is united not for our name, not to magnify our name. Rather, now we use our unity to come together and make God's name great. Our purpose for coming together is to magnify and exalt the name of Christ, for he has redeemed us. We were lost, we were divided. We are at enmity with God and one another. Yet God, through the Son, turned us around. And now through the Spirit, God is pleased to see, <clears throat> excuse me, to see us unified again. And God knows that together now we can use this unity for good, for lifting up the name of God, for magnifying Christ, for spreading the gospel. And God knows that together we can accomplish the impossible. He's provided his Spirit to do this. But this is his plan with the church. This is his mission. And it cannot be achieved without unity. So first things first, just recognize this, realize this, appreciate this. You still might ask, how can this be achieved? Because we're still so different and our sinful flesh doesn't want this. And that's why churches sometimes divide. But you just work at being part of the solution, not the problem. And to do this, first, remember the prerequisites of unity. What it takes, salvation, new birth, the the fellowship of the Spirit, which we already have in Christ. The the foundation's already been laid. And then second, remember the picture of unity. You have to see the goal, what we're after, a one purpose to to spread the gospel, to glorify God, a same mindset, a servant's mindset, knit with one, one another. And then finally, engage in the pursuit of unity. We're called by the Spirit to strive for it, to preserve 
the fellowship of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. We'll do this by denying self, humbling self, and serving others just like our Savior did first for us. You remember these things, you implement these things, and then you will see a peace, a joy, and a love explode in the church, in your life, in your family, in your marriage. You will see the light of the gospel shining brighter to the dark world around us. And you'll even see God drawing sinners to himself, all which he does through the powerful unity of the church. There's only one Lord, and there's only one body. And let's be a part of this one body together. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the oneness of your church. We see in your great wisdom what you are doing. Man is only divided by his sin. Our sin, Lord, our fallenness divided us from you first and foremost, and then already from one another. Mankind ever after has been always at enmity with one another. And even the superficial unity achieved was, was lost after Babel, Lord. We are a scattered, divided people looking out only for ourselves, only for our own interests, as at the root of our flesh and fallenness. But thanks be to you, Lord, that you sent Christ to, to humble himself first, to deny himself first, to die for us first, to serve us, that we might be reconciled to you and even reconciled to one another. And even through this, Lord, as you call many people like bricks in a building together, you're building a great lighthouse, the top of which will reach the heavens, through which you will draw even more to yourself. The light of the church is found in its oneness. So may we be one. May we do our part to deny ourselves, humble ourselves, and serve one another. Even in this local church, Lord, may we be known by a love and a service for one another. May we all really consider and leave this morning thinking how we can encourage one another, serve one another, put the interests of others ahead of ourselves, and Lord, even apply this to our own marriages and families. It's all the same. This is how unity is achieved. And when we're like Christ, he, he did this first. He had this attitude in himself first. Lord, may we follow in his way and be blessed and, and be made one. That you might be glorified. That your name might be proclaimed and magnified in all the earth. As in Christ's name we pray. Amen.